Hello everyone, this is Sonali Mangal and welcome to another episode of Learn, Educate, Discover. On this podcast, we invite people from different professions on each of our episodes and we ask them a range of questions to try and understand what their job is all about. The goal of this podcast is to try and educate our listeners about as many different kind of jobs as we can so that someone listening to the show can decide does a certain job sound interesting to them and if yes, how do they go about exploring it further. Now, on today's episode, we are going to be talking about corporate litigation. And to help us understand this area, our guest on today's show is Andrew McComb, who is a litigation lawyer based out of Toronto in Canada with the multinational law firm Norton Rose Fulbright. And Andrew has been working as a lawyer for close to five years now. And he's worked on a variety of cases such as shareholder disputes, contract disputes, intellectual property matters, and many others. And he has also worked across a variety of industries such as transportation, technology, pharmaceutical, financial services, and many others. So I really hope that you enjoy today's episode. Quick note. Today's discussion is a little bit longer than a typical LED episode. It is close to a two hours long discussion. And I did think about splitting the episode into two parts to make it easier for you perhaps. But then I do think that splitting an episode into multiple parts can disrupt the flow of the conversation. And so I decided to keep it together. But one suggestion I have in case you do not want to listen to the entire discussion in one go, if you don't have the time for it, is to simply pause the episode and come back to it at a later time. That's how I listen to a lot of podcasts, which are slightly longer in length. And all apps such as iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, they all support the ability to pause an episode and come back to it at a later point. So I hope you enjoy today's discussion and find it helpful. And without further ado, let's welcome Andrew. Andrew, hello. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me, Sonali. Absolutely. Thank you so much for taking the time. I know that you've been keeping extremely busy lately. So are you like actively involved in a case right now? I am. I've got a few uh, very interesting, very big cases uh, on the fly and in development right now. We're working on preparing for some hearings that are coming up in the next few months. So busy, busy, but it's, uh, it's great to talk to you. Oh, no, absolutely. And, I, you know, this is one area that I have absolutely no clue about, like really no clue <laughs> about. So I'm giving you a fair warning. You might expect a bunch of silly questions in today's discussion, uh, but I've, I've warned you well in time. Um, anyway, so I think a good place to start would be if you can just tell us a little bit about yourself and your career path so far. Yeah. Um, so uh, as I said, uh, or as you introduced, I'm a, I'm a lawyer uh, working in Toronto in Canada. I work at Norton Rose Fulbright. Uh, I've been here since uh, about 2012 as a lawyer, but I started as a, a summer student back in 2010 when I was in law school. Mm. Um, before going to law school, I did a, a degree in English literature at a university uh, called Western University in London, Ontario, uh, which was great. And then I went to uh, law school at Dalhousie University in uh, Halifax, Nova Scotia on the east coast of Canada, um, but I'm from the, the Toronto area, and I always wanted to, to come back home to work and to practice law, uh, and so here I am. I've been doing it, as you said, for about uh, about five years. Yeah, and, and what got you interested in law? 
That's a good question. Um, I think I was always a little bit, uh, this is kind of cliche to say, but I was a little bit argumentative. Uh, I liked <laughs> debate. I was involved in uh, competitive debating in high school and then in university. And, you know, at one point in time, actually, I was thinking about going into both business and in science because I liked uh, I liked studying science in high school and I thought business would be a, a good career path for me. And then um, in my uh, undergraduate studies, I, I started getting less interested in science, which I found was learning a lot of uh, facts and memorizing facts mm-hmm. um, and more interested in subjects like literature that were uh, about ideas and about discussion and about expression. Um, so I made a transition into uh, to English program. And then from there, uh, you know, I started thinking about my options for what I could do with the rest of my life, or at least the next chapter of my life. Mm -hmm. And there were a bunch of possible things. Academics was an option, becoming a professor in literature or in something related to that. Um, Getting into journalism was an option that I thought about, Mm -hmm. uh, which I think is a natural thing for English students to think about. And, and the law was also another option that I was starting to think about um, because it was just in line with some of my personal traits, um, th- this idea of representing people or advocating for people or for companies um, started to appeal to me. And mm-hmm. so uh, I kind of uh, on a whim went and wrote a test LSAT and that went okay. <laughs> and I started thinking about it more and more and then eventually just around my second year uh, of undergraduate studies made the choice to uh, to pursue this sort of full-time and to try to get into law school and that worked and uh, the rest is history I guess. No I mean and thank you so much for sharing this because it's always good to understand what was someone's thought process as they uh, sort of figure out what is it that they want to do in their lives because that is something that a lot of people struggle with themselves right like trying to figure out that should I do this or this or that. And, and it sounds like from a very early age, you were interested in, in debate and uh, sort of arguing your point. And I'm guessing that's that's a fairly big part of your job today as a lawyer. It, it is. I mean, the, the whole job is is that idea. I mean, and, and, and sometimes it's more complicated than other times. Um, but the, the premise of my job is I represent people or companies. I take on their position when they have a dispute with somebody else. Hmm. And I take their side of whatever story it is, and I try to persuade whoever I have to persuade that that story is the uh, the right view of the world and the, the legal view of the world uh, in an effort to, to maximize or optimize the outcome for my client, whoever they may be. Right. So yeah, that, that's, that's definitely still a, a huge part of, of my, my working life. Um, and, and I've been fortunate to be able to pick up on, on something like that, that was a part of, you know, who I was when I was a little bit younger and a part of just sort of my natural personality and Mm -hmm. turn it into something that looks like a career. And, uh, I I do want to get into corporate litigation, but just one more follow-up question on that. So one is that, you know, you were interested in debate and you enjoyed it. Was there any point in time where you realized that you're actually good at it? And if yes, how did you figure that out? (laughs) That's a that's a really good question. Um, I so with the university debating that I was doing, I mean, I was going to competitive tournaments at other universities. Uh, I went to national championships and I went to world championships. I never did especially well at 
world championships, but I had some success after a while at, at national championships um, and, and, and other regional tournaments and things like that. Uh, and, you know, I was facing off against some good teams and getting some good results. So, I, I, you know, there were sort of objective measures uh, to, mm-hmm. to give me a sense that I, I was maybe improving that skill as I was working on these things. I mean, I never, uh, I never got to the very, very top uh, of the, the pyramid in the, the Canadian or the international debating world, but I had a little bit of uh, actual success and I had a lot of fun in the process. Yeah. So that was, it's a sort of a combination of those objective and subjective measures that gave me the sense that maybe this was something worth doing. Yeah, but that's a great point, right? Because as you start doing this in a slightly more quote-unquote professional capacity, like at least like, you know, you're taking part in these competitions, you first of all start seeing what are other similarly talented debaters like and if you enjoy doing it over and over again then you know that hey you know this might be something that i actually might want to pursue in some sort of a career kind of um, capacity yeah absolutely i think that the uh, the biggest piece of it was just getting that feeling that i was really enjoying what i was doing and a lot of the people who are involved in that world the debating world do end up being lawyers Hmm. uh, and do pursue law school at very least and so um so I definitely got that sense. And yeah, I mean, I also picked up a lot of uh, traits and skills and mannerisms and ideas from some some very, very smart people. Um, and that, I think, helped build the skill set along the way. Right, right. And, and we'll definitely get to that point in the discussion where we'll talk about, you know, how do you actually handle uh, arguing your case in a courtroom? I'm sure that's very exciting. But going back to sort of your decision to then get into corporate litigation, so you, you figured out that you were interested in law, but then why corporate litigation? Because like if maybe if you can tell us, like the, broadly speaking, what are the various areas within law that you can consider and then what made you get into corporate litigation? Sure. So uh, there are a lot of different um, disciplines within, within law or specialties. Broadly speaking, I think people tend to divide the legal profession into two categories on one side, you have what people would call barrister work or litigation type work. And on the other side, you have solicitor work or, uh, you know, more paperwork focused or transaction focused um, or contract focused. Um, so on the, 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 the barrister side, I mean, that's the stuff that l- lined up with what I was doing with debate, with my you know philosophies about who I was and what my aptitudes were. So I was always pulling towards uh, that part of the world, the, the dispute resolution, litigation, barrister type work. Mm-hmm. Um, and then within that category, there's, uh, you know, there's civil litigation, which is um, really, in many respects, everything other than criminal litigation, which is another category. Um, there's regulatory work, um, which is sort of dealing with regulations for various circumstances and, and instances. Um, and then, you know, within the, the headings of sort of criminal work and civil work, there's, uh, you know, criminal work is kind of what it is. It's uh, dealing with people in criminal issues. And I always did have an interest in doing that in some way. Uh, and then on the civil side, there's a lot of different uh, things that people normally think about. You've got stuff like personal injury litigation. Um, you've got family litigation. Uh, you've got uh, estates, wills and estates kind of things. Mm. Uh, and then you've got um, other types of uh, things involving businesses. So corporate commercial litigation, litigation involving companies, 
um, you know, between two different companies or multiple companies, uh, and then things like class actions, mm-hmm. um, which sometimes is litigation involving you know a company on one hand and a lot of people on the other hand, uh, or maybe a lot of people suing one person or a group of people or something like that. But but there's a bunch of different um, subcategories within the idea of civil litigation, and to be honest. I think it's fair to say I find all of them interesting. Um, they're all, they all have their different nuances and different challenges. The clients are different. The issues are different. Um, but they're in many ways similar in that you're applying a similar skill set uh, in, a, in, a, in a particular context to try to help your client achieve a certain result. Hmm. Um, for me, the pull to do corporate, uh, in particular corporate litigation or commercial litigation, uh, it has a lot to do with market forces in terms of hiring. Um, so for me, the you know the the lay of the land when I was at law school was that uh, you know there's a there's a regimented recruitment process that happens for uh, Toronto area law firms. Toronto's um, the biggest or one of the biggest legal markets in Canada. I'm fairly comfortable saying it's the biggest legal market in Canada, mm. particularly for corporate law. Um, and so when I was at law school, there was a, a structured hiring process for um, getting into those firms. And they're very, uh, the, the Toronto area law firms, without any disrespect to uh, law firms in other cities mm-hmm. in, in the country, which are also very good. Toronto has a lot of very good law firms, big law firms um, with, you know, good opportunities to learn from some very good lawyers, um, to learn about the law in an interesting kind of fast paced environment. So. Uh, when I was in law school, I got into this recruitment process and I really, because I'm from the Toronto area, I really just wanted to come back to Toronto and work here after law school. So uh, I targeted those um, corporate firms a little bit by default because uh, I could, I had, uh, I was fortunate enough and, and worked hard enough to um, get grades that at least put me in the discussion mm-hmm. uh, to get one of those jobs. And uh, I wound up in this recruitment process and I ended up getting hired at, at one of these firms. And um, I've been lucky in that I've always found it interesting. Some of my colleagues who've gone through the same process have wound up transitioning out of uh, commercial litigation or corporate law to do something like family law or wills and estates law right. um, or personal injury law. Um, but I've managed to stick with it and I still find it interesting. Um, right. You know, once I got into the environment in this firm and and saw what the work was like, I, I found it fascinating in that the challenges were always different. Um, mm. I, I think, and we, I'm sure you'll we'll dig into that a little bit more later. But I think one of the interesting things about um, about corporate law or, or uh, corporate litigation um, is that the the challenges with each client, with each business, um, and and learning about each business is always going to be different. Um, so no, you know, no two businesses, even when they're in the same market, do the exact same thing or do it the same way with the same um, the same approach to things. So it's always I find fascinating to to dig into a company and learn about what they do, learn about how they do it, um, right. and and that's one of the big things that's 
attracted me from a, an early an early stage right right no absolutely and i so i mean it, it sounds like for you at some point it also became definitely what you were interested in but it also became a decision from the point of view of how hiring was working on campus and what kind of companies were coming in your college for recruiting um but like do you, do you think there is an aspect of thinking about do i want to represent companies or do i want to represent people i, I think that would be like one very basic sort of access to look at right absolutely and i think there are some people who go to law school or get into the profession of being a lawyer who have a very strong drive for whatever personal reason to want to work with individuals or to want to work in a certain environment Hmm. some people you know um have extensive uh you know business backgrounds they went to business school or they worked for a bank or some company and so they obviously have, uh, you know, a possible pull in the direction of, you know, wanting to work with companies. Right. Whereas other people, based on their backgrounds, um, whatever those backgrounds are, they might want to work um, for or with uh, with individuals more often. I mean, the beautiful thing about the job that I have um, is that really I get to work with both because in a lot of cases, you know, the companies that we work for are the babies, uh, the, you know, the, the, um, the pride and joy for some very, very smart and amazing people who mm-hmm. develop That's cool true. ideas and invent products and stuff. So I find I get the best of both worlds in what I do and that I get to work with some fascinating, um, interesting companies and a lot of really, really cool people who work within those companies. But you're, you're absolutely right, Sonali, that there is a, there's a strong drive for a lot of people um, to, to often to work with uh, individuals. And I think that's a a personal connection thing and that's a background thing hmm. um, but it, it definitely you see it in family lawyers is a good example um, I find that the family lawyers that I sometimes get to meet and deal with they're all awesome people and they often have this drive to want to help people people in right. a difficult situation exactly. which I think is very cool yeah 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 so how would you describe corporate litigation then so uh, I think the best way to, to look at it is that there's sort of two um, Two, two categories again. One is what I would call uh, commercial litigation, which is dispute resolution between companies. Uh, you know, when I'm at cocktail parties, I describe it as company fights. <laughs> and that's, um, that's most of what I do on a day-to-day basis. Mm. Um, and then in addition to that, there's civil litigation, um, which from a corporate standpoint usually means when companies are involved with dispute resolution, uh, resolution with members of the public. So that's the class um, action lawsuit. Is that what they're mostly called? Um, class actions are, are specifically uh, pieces of civil litigation that involve typically large groups of people who are suing one um, entity, whatever it may be, a, a company, a person or something like that, um, where that group of people has a, a kind of a shared interest in the litigation. Okay. Um, because litigation can be very expensive depending on you know who your lawyer is. Um, class actions let a lot of people go through the process with economies of scale that can help them um, try to right. resolve their issue mm-hmm. in one go, or at least make progress towards resolving their issue in one go. But uh, you're absolutely right; class actions fall squarely in that category uh, of civil civil litigation, and I, I work on a bunch of those matters at all times. Right. Um, but but the civil piece of it can also be broader. So. I'm not an employment and labor lawyer, but on occasion I'll deal with 
um, employment related disputes. And so that's, you know, litigation between maybe a person who thinks they were wrongfully terminated from a company and a company. Um, uh, or, you know, for example, uh, personal injury type issues do come up between a person and a company. For example, you know, I was, I was on your company's premises and, one of your drivers ran over my foot with your car or something like <laughs> yeah. that. So that's another example of um, civil litigation that has a kind of a corporate dynamic to it where right. a company is involved. Right, right, right. Okay, no, this is very interesting. I feel like this is going to be a long conversation because I will not be able to stop myself from asking you questions. And, and, and as a, a typical lawyer, I won't be able to stop myself from talking. So <laughs> it, it's, it goes both ways. It's perfect. Okay. So... Uh, and like, if you were to describe the job of a lawyer, so you know, maybe there's a way in describing what the field itself is about, and how would how you would describe your your own job? Like, how would you describe it? I mean, I think the best word to to use to describe it is that I'm an advocate, hmm. um, and the way I think about it is that I'm often taking on other people's or companies' problems, and I'm sort of making them not my own problems, but I'm I'm taking them on to try to advance their case in resolving those problems for the best possible outcome. So um, so for companies, I mean, the, the best way to think about it is really uh, as a, a piece of the risk management puzzle. That, that sounds a little bit bureaucratic maybe, but um, at, at the end of the day, companies, uh, you know, they have risks that they deal with. There's business risks, there's political risks. Mm. And one of the risks they're always dealing with is litigation risk, which is that you know, one of our customers is going to get hurt by one of our products or one of our competitors is going to do something and we're going to need to deal with that in court or, you know, anything. There's a million different things that can come up that could become, um, a, you know, a dispute resolution type risk. And so my job um, is to help individuals and companies manage those risks optimally. So what that means is, you know, in a whole bunch of different ways, because litigation can happen uh, or you know, dispute resolution can happen in a bunch of different um, in a bunch of different ways, and can get resolved in a bunch of different ways. Um, the the general job is to try to make the best case for someone, you know, on the law and on the facts that exist, um, so as to convince somebody. And and who you're trying to convince is sort of always an open question, but to convince somebody that your position is right and, and that your risk should be managed in the way you say it should be. Right. Um, and when I say, you know, to try to convince somebody, somebody's often a judge when, um, you know, when litigation is actually going to court and going to be dealt with in court, hmm. um, the ultimate person who's going to decide is often a judge. Hmm. It can, um, it can in rare cases be a jury. We don't have that many commercial or corporate jury trials in Canada. Um, it's obviously much more common in the United States to have jury trials, but that right. could be the person who you're trying to convince of something. Um, if you're in private arbitration, which is where you know you have two parties who say we don't want this issue to be a, a public dispute, we want it to be dealt with privately. So let's hire an arbitrator. Mm-hmm. They can hear the issue just like a judge would, and they can come to a decision. Um, so sometimes it's an arbitrator that I'm trying to convince. Right. Sometimes it's a mediator that I'm trying to convince somebody uh, or convince of somebody's position. So as part of litigation, you often go and meet with a mediator and you make your case to a mediator and a mediator says, well, I think you guys should maybe pay this. And you try to haggle out a, a resolution to right. whatever issue, issue you're dealing with. Um, and then 
sometimes it's trying to convince the other side in the dispute. So if, for example, a company gets sued by someone and there's really not a very strong basis for the lawsuit, sometimes the task is really just to convince their lawyers and to convince the client on the other side that, look, this lawsuit isn't a very good lawsuit. Um, and you should just abandon it or let us go and to somebody else or something. And, and then the, the, the last group of people sometimes you're trying to convince are your own clients of something. Um, so, oh, okay. if, you know, a lot of times people think they have a, a strong basis to sue somebody or to resist litigation on a certain basis and say, well, no, we shouldn't have to pay them or we shouldn't have to mm. do that. Um, and so a lot of the job revolves around, um, you know, looking at the law and looking at the facts and, and being very realistic about what the landscape is and where things maybe aren't favorable for your client, being very forthright about that and saying, look, you know, you can probably save yourself some litigation risk here and save yourself some cost if you settle this and, and come to a reasonable landing with the other side. But, but the, uh, to answer your question, I think generally speaking, the idea is, you know, advocacy and risk management mm. um, are the, the kind of hallmarks of the job and, and the way that gets expressed is, trying to convince, uh, well, first of all, a lot of learning about, you know, what the situation is. And then based on that learning um, and the law itself, trying to convince various stakeholders or listeners um, that uh, that your client is right or uh, of a certain position. That's right. Yeah. And this is this is very interesting. I, I think the, the one quick clarification I'd like to make is that you are not necessarily always reacting to uh, someone filing a case. Right. So one one kind of category of cases is that an employee or some other company says, OK, you've done something wrong and then you're trying to build a case for a client. But there is like the risk management piece that seems to be more of an ongoing sort of thing. Like you're always trying to think about like what could happen and then managing that risk up front. Absolutely. And there's a huge preventative component okay. in what I do um, and a, a compliance component. And we are consulted regularly, and I find corporations are getting often very good about this, about managing their their litigation risk before it turns into a lawsuit, I see. and thinking about the thinking about the possible ways that um, you know something could go wrong, uh, or you know when a, a situation is developing that's complicated and potentially very problematic, thinking about that and getting in touch with their legal counsel. And coming up with strategies on how to manage risk. So yeah, there's a total um, preventative and proactive component to the job right, for sure. Right. And uh, because you're in corporate litigation, most of your clients tend to be companies. Uh, who do you generally work with? Are you working with their their legal department, or are you working with like who who is your counterpart at the client side? That's a great uh, great question. To some degree, it depends on the size of the client. Hmm. So for the largest clients, we are most often dealing with their internal legal groups, which can be very big groups of lawyers, mm. um, can be potentially dozens of people. With, with smaller businesses, mid-sized businesses, it's more likely that you're going to be dealing with people on the business side um, in, in, you know, in different roles, all the way down to very small businesses where you get to deal with uh, the actual innovators, the founders of the company, the CEOs. Hmm. Um, so there's a there's a bit of a range, and I take direction from a lot of different people within those ranges. Got it, got it. That makes sense. All right, so, so Andrew, going back to when you were describing how, as a lawyer, your primary job is, can be described as 
an advocate and someone who's helping manage that risk and the people that you're trying to convince most of the time fall into either the categories of like a jury or a judge uh some kind of a private you know people arbitrator uh, yeah. arbitrator that's right a mediator either the other side themselves or your own client so what might be helpful is if we take a case uh, and i know as a lawyer you probably cannot share a lot of details confidential details about any case but if there's a case that stands out in your mind and then maybe we can walk through that case from beginning to end from the time that the case, that case came to you how do you actually go about building your case what do you have to think about because i think that'll help illustrate your job really well sure it's it's probably easiest to just talk about the the different pieces maybe in like a hypothetical okay um context or in the abstract a little bit yeah um but uh, the the way you approach a case depends a little bit on whether you're starting the case or you're responding to the case Hmm. So, um, notwithstanding the fact that, you know, this is a corporate, uh, I work in the, the corporate space and we do defend a lot of people. We're also sometimes, uh, on offense in the sense that it's our client that wants to bring a lawsuit against somebody else. Right. Um, but the, the general, the general steps or the general process don't really change too much depending on which side of things, uh, you're on, but you, you know, the, the tactics are obviously very different. Um, but I think, you know, every case starts in the same place or more or less the same place, which is contact with a client who has an issue mm. and they want to seek your assistance in getting rid of that issue. So, um, for example, that could be, you know, they are being sued by someone for breach of contract. I think that's sort of a classic case and very much one that I see on my desk on a regular basis. Mm. Um, or the flip side of it is that they want to sue someone for breach of contract because, for example, uh, a supplier is refusing to supply goods and they've signed a contract and we've right. paid for it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so the, the first phase is always a really important fact-gathering phase where we ask the client, and, and we often have a lot of face-to-face meetings. Sometimes we'll go and do a site visit um, but, but we'll ask the client for every piece of information they can provide us about what the story is. Mm. And we often prepare uh, in those situations um, a, a kind of chronology, a table to say on this date, you know, uh, these people met and they started working on the contract. Mm. And on this date, they signed the contract. And on this date, they provided a supply of whatever um, and so on and so forth, because it's really important for us to get really a point-by-point understanding of the history of things. Right. So I, I, um, I have a follow-up question here, and this is more, yeah, out, of, yeah. more out of like, uh, my question is, is biased based on what I see in movies, of course. But I find it a little, uh, so for example, like in movies and all, etc., of course, you see much more of criminal kind of cases because th- that's what the audience wants to see. But it, it's always kind of interesting to see, you know, lawyers question their client. And... Mm-hmm. How do you deal with people trying to jog their memory and trying to come up with this is what happened like five months ago? Like, like as a lawyer, have you found that you've developed certain tactics to really figure out, oh, this doesn't seem to be right, but I think right now he's telling the truth? Um, That's a great question. I mean, I think one of the things that makes that a little bit easier for me in the commercial space than it would be for the average TV lawyer is (laughs) the fact that... um, so much of what we do is closely linked to email. So, okay. so many of the details that we have about a company's dealings with the public or with other companies um, are tracked with these timestamp documents that come out of people's right. inboxes and that are very, 
they're very difficult to emails are very difficult to to sort of misrepresent. And right. I find that it's very rare that we end up sort of actually ever questioning whether or not an email was sent on a certain day. So hmm. um, so the, the, the first thing I think about when you ask that question is just about emails, because we have this contemporaneous record of what's gone on with people that really supports the story. And I find it's very, very common. I mean, you ask about five months ago, because you're totally right, like people's memories are very difficult to deal with. Right. Um, in Ontario, and I, I, it's, you know, there's something like this in place everywhere, but in Ontario, there's a statute of limitations that says you need to sue somebody within okay. two years, two years of when you realize uh, you have a reason to sue somebody. Okay. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, you can have this window where the action doesn't even start for two years after uh, something has arisen. Mm. And, and so that puts a real strain on people's memories. And, and then maybe, you know, you're not actually asking for facts until three years later, et cetera. So mm. the, the first thing that really helps is emails and other other related documents. But um, the truth is you have to work with what you've got in terms of evidence and what people can remember. And a lot of times, you know, we're very clear with our clients. Um, you never want to guess. You don't want to go and say, you know, I, I don't remember exactly what happened, but I think somebody might have said this yeah. to me. I mean, that's interesting to learn about. But, but when you're making statements to court or when you're making, uh, you know, you're giving a deposition, and we can talk about that later um, in terms of the structure of, of litigation. But when you're when you're giving evidence to anybody, mm. you don't want to be guessing. And so that's a big part of it is trying to drill down to what people's best knowledge is. Right. right. Uh, since in you know looking back, it's not always perfect. Right. Okay. Um, but it's it's a you you touch on a really really tricky part of the job. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because I, I always wonder that, right? And especially like the, the example that you gave that someone might say, oh, I was on your company premises and some guy from your company drove over my foot. I mean, that doesn't seem like something that there would be an email record of, right? Like, how do you prove that? Like, whose fault was it? It seems like an impossible thing to do, in my mind, at least. <laughs> yeah, it's it's tricky. But at the same time, you know, if if the uh, the person who drove the van over the person's foot goes back to their computer uh, or, you know, gets on their phone and they send an email to their boss and it mm. says, hey, boss, look, I want to talk to you about something. I think I just ran over some guy's foot. Yeah. Then that becomes a lot clearer. And sometimes yeah. those kinds of emails get sent, you know. Yeah. Um, How do people, you... people aren't super, super careful with what they say in, in documents when something's gone wrong. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I know. I mean, and how do you get access to all of this? So I guess when you begin a case like this, there is some kind of formality that happens that says that, okay, now these lawyers can have access to all of our emails or, or a certain subset of emails and mobile records and all that. So what typically happens is uh, I work with a team of, of law clerks, of paralegals who are amazing hmm. uh, and very talented and they're very good at handling this part of cases. Hmm. And um, they will typically get in touch with, you know, again, depending on the size of the client, whether it's a small business or medium-sized business or some huge company, they will get in touch with the relevant people on the other side to find out, you know, who, uh, we, we call them custodians. Who are the custodians of important information in this case? Then who should we contact and whose computers should we um, to try to, gotcha. to look into to see where we can find the stuff? You know, where are there paper files that we should be looking for um, that we can find more information on, stuff like that. And okay. so... There's, a, there's an information exchange that happens between us and a client where the client provides that information to us. Uh, we gather it, we put it in a database, and then we look through it uh, to determine you know, what's actually relevant. So we mm -hmm. never go and 
give up a whole ton of information without looking at it. We go and see what's relevant. Sometimes we have to take out um, information that's privileged. So if, if people are talking about a case or something like that with their lawyer or they're talking about legal advice with their lawyer in their inbox, that's stuff that obviously gets taken out of whatever uh, you know, you pull together for litigation. Hmm. Um, but there's a, there's a huge process involved sometimes, you know, it, it may be tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of, um, documents of emails of right, right. Uh, transcripts and things like that that you have to pull, pull together because sometimes with these cases, it can be very, very complicated. Oh yeah, I can imagine. So, and it, it sounds like it's the paralegals who are actually doing that data mining of, of sorts to figure out exactly what happened. They do a lot of the technical stuff, um, the the preparation of those materials, and then it really is lawyers who, who do the review of it to see what's relevant and what's informative and what's okay. helpful. Got it, got it. All right, so going back to then going through sort of the typical stages in a case. So the first stage was what you described where you're getting in touch with the client and trying to figure out what happened and doing this fact gathering. Um, so what comes next? So the next stage of things would be what we would call the pleading stage. Hmm. And the pleadings uh, is a term to refer to the process of sort of making making your pitch for the case. So if you are suing someone, uh, for example, in Ontario, you start by drafting a document called the Statement of Claim, which is where you set out in you know numbered paragraphs, um, you know, I think you owe me this much money for say, breach of contract and negligence. Mm. And then after you explain, you know, what you what your claim is, what you're what you're asking for in the lawsuit, then you set out in in paragraphs after that, the story more or less of what you think happened, what you intend to prove at the end of the day, if you wind up at a trial. Okay. Um, So we we call that a pleading. And then the response to that is a statement of defense. And so if, you, if you're uh, a company and you're responding to a lawsuit that you get served with one day, mm-hmm. uh, which is to say if, you, if you've been handed a statement of claim that says, you know, we say you owe us this money, then you do your fact gathering and then you prepare a document called a statement of defense. Mm-hmm. And the statement of defense says, well, no, of course we don't owe you that money um, or something like that. And then it explains in numbered paragraphs again what the what – the, right story you plan to tell at trial is about why you don't owe somebody else money or why you weren't negligent, uh, why the facts that are set out in the statement of claim really just don't apply or aren't true or something like that. So again, a quick follow-up question over there, which is that um, how do you, let's say you are suing someone else, like either a supplier or some other company, how do you figure out that amount that they owe you? Um. it's a it's a fluid process. It's a tricky process. Sometimes it's very very simple, mm. um, and sometimes it's very complicated. So, uh, in the simplest case, imagine someone is shipping goods to somebody else. Um, you're a say you're a manufacturer, and someone orders a uh, hundred thousand dollars worth of office chairs um, to be delivered to your company, uh, and you go and deliver the office chairs, and they don't deliver you the money back, a hundred thousand dollars. Well, then you have a pretty straightforward lawsuit for $100,000. You say, I gave you the chairs. Mm. Um, you need to make good on your promise and you need to pay me the $100,000. Now, on top of that, you add probably a few other, um, what we'd call, you know, there's a few other line items that you add into that. Right. Um, one could be interest, for example. So, you, you know, if it takes two years to get to trial mm. and get a judge to say, yeah, you owe them $100,000 for those chairs. 
then it's fair to ask for interest on top of that for that period of time. Right. We, we call it prejudgment interest. Um, and then, but, you know, as the case gets more complicated, the question of what the actual damages are gets more complicated. And it's not something that you always necessarily know when you start a lawsuit. So, for example, to take a, take a different example, um, you can think about the case where, um, say, some investment brokers from one company um, decide to breach contracts maybe they have with that company and move over to another company and bring their clients with them, even though they maybe signed a, a contract that says, you know, we're not going to compete with you and we're not going to solicit your clients. In that case, you know, the damages that you might have suffered as that company whose investment guys walked away, um, those might be fluid. Those might be up in the air because they could be changing over time. Right. Um, in that, you know, you've lost the opportunity to work with those clients up front. Um, you don't know how much money they've made with the other company, uh, you know, the, your investment advisors have made or the clients have made to know how much you've lost because they're gone. So you have to go figure that out as part of the litigation process. Hmm. Um, but it's also changing over time. It's that, you know, that number is adding up every time the, the, the clients earn more money from their investments. That's so th that, that whole exercise is a, a very tricky and very fluid process. Um, something that is done in, uh, I would say certainly more than half of the lawsuits that I'm involved in is we actually retain experts uh, to help us with those damages questions. And there are a lot of um, people who are in accounting and forensic accounting who, who specialize in litigation expert opinions. Uh, so they, you know, they're able to look into the set of facts at issue in a case and analyze them and then produce a producer report. So a lot of the, the, um, the, the big four firms have people who do that, and there are a lot of boutique firms who um, work on those kinds of questions. They do a fantastic job. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I could make out that this is obviously not a very straightforward process. And as it's very clear that this depends a lot on the judgment of the lawyer also. And over a period of time, you will learn to figure out, you know, where you can actually... Um, as in depending on the kind of case and how big it is, how much you should be charging for. Like, it's not like an exact science. No, that's exactly right. And so when you start the case, often um, you, you, you do want to put a number in your statement of claim so that people have an understanding of the, the general, the, you know, the, the stakes that are involved in litigation. But uh, oftentimes that number is really a guess yeah, um, yeah. because you just don't have better information. And, and the, you, as we'll talk about you know, shortly, the litigation process affords a lot of opportunities to learn about your case and to actually figure out what that number is. Right. And so that becomes clearer over time. Absolutely. And then one more question, which is that when you prepare the statement of claim, let's say, I mean, this this I'm, I'm guessing is sort of building the foundation of the case, right? So you want it to be really good. So if you were to compare like a good statement of claim with a not so good one, what do you think would be the key differences? That's, a, that's an excellent question. I think one of the key differences is when you read a bad statement of claim uh, as a lawyer, you're able to determine, you can, you can sort of see the cracks forming in the case when you read a bad statement of claim, mm -hmm. um, which is to say that you can see the allegations that are maybe more uh, outlandish or far-reaching or that are going to be harder to prove. Hmm. And you can see the the pieces that are sort of already starting to fall away. And then, so w when you said that 
the the statement of claim is the foundation for the case. That's the absolute perfect word for it. It's the the way that the entire case gets framed up, um, and the way it, it frames the way people think about the case. Um, and I think the best ones that I see are ones that don't waste any space, don't waste any time, don't waste any words hmm. on on pieces that don't support the story. Um, because you know, one thing that you can imagine, right, people often getting into dispute resolution and having to go the route of litigating their dispute in court, uh, for example, they're often really mad. They're often really mad about what's happened to them. And again, the, the, the wrongful dismissal example is a really good one. Um, in, I find in those cases when I see those statements of claim, it's pretty common for people to insert you know, other stuff, other facts, other mm. pieces mm. that they, they are very upset about, but maybe they don't have anything to do with the lawsuit. But right. they want to they you know, get it out in public um, and sort of air that issue because the statement of claim is a public document. It's filed in the courthouse. Uh, and anyone can go and find it if you want. So people people like to add those things in, and it ultimately, in my view, just reduces credibility. It makes your case look weaker than it is. Absolutely, best ones yeah. best ones are very point first um, driven, point first writing. Mm. They're very clear. They're aggressive, but without including commentary that you just don't need to have in there. Yeah, it's not emotional. And you said point first writing. What does that mean? Um, so that I mean, maybe that's uh, a a term that I overuse, but it, the, the idea, generally speaking, is just to make sure that the the start of every paragraph or the start of every section in an argument or the start of every sentence, to the extent it's possible, uh, makes your point as early as you can. So mm-hmm. if you're developing, say, a, a, an argument, a written argument that's you know 10 pages long, you don't want someone finding out on page nine what your point is. <laughs> you want to tell them immediately what the point is and then spend the next eight pages explaining, explaining the it. point. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so that's that's certainly something that I'm always striving to do in the writing that I do. Maybe not. it's not something that I'm always managing to do in my podcast interviews. Um, but it's, <laughs> it's something that I'm going for and that we always try to do. It's definitely a theme of the work we do in this office. Right. Okay. And I'm sure that your, that your background in debating probably comes in very handy here right like how do you frame an argument i think that's probably the 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 gist of how you're putting like a good statement of claim you want to frame your argument in as compelling a way as possible and act succinctly as possible yeah okay absolutely so all right so coming back to the stages so you've done your fact gathering now you've put together the statement of claim and send it off what happens next so the, the typical next phase is um, what we would call the discovery process. Um, you know, the, the one thing to keep in mind, too, is that uh, after you start a lawsuit or after you respond to a lawsuit, um, you wind up in a position where, you know, it, it's a really good opportunity at that point in time to settle mm-hmm. often because uh, a lawsuit either looks a lot better than it did when it started or a lot worse than it did when it started at that point in time. And so from from around the time where you get served with a lawsuit or you're thinking about suing someone, the, the possibility of settling the case becomes really important uh, mm. to, to keep in mind. And so that runs throughout a case really until you start a trial at the end of the day, which can be years later. Oh. Um, but assuming you don't settle at this point in time, the, the next piece is discovery. And like it sounds, it's the process of really figuring out 
what the case is all about. So the uh, the rules of procedure in Ontario are similar probably to where the, what they are in a lot of other places. And generally speaking, they require that parties to uh, litigation provide the other side of the, the dispute with relevant non-privileged documents that they have in their possession. Hmm. So, so what that means is, you know, if you have a whole bunch of emails that explain how the other side has breached their contract, if you have emails demonstrating that, you know, um, that uh, there was a contract between two parties and that you delivered your $100,000 worth of chairs and you didn't receive any money back, hmm. then what you're going to do is you're going to package those emails up in a certain prescribed format and you're going to provide them to the other side. And it goes beyond emails. It goes down to the contracts themselves. It goes to any paper documentation or electronic documentation you have um, that helps explain what the case is about. And it's not just about what's favorable to your case. It's also what's unfavorable to your case. So you, that's why we talked about earlier oh, that, you know, that important big detailed review of all the documents that the client has. Right. Um, you, you go through all that uh, and it can be a very complicated, tedious process, but you go through all of that and you pull out what's relevant, you package it up and you give it to the other side. So I, and, I'm, I'm curious about why you would share this information with the other side. The idea is, generally speaking, that the, the point of this process, um, so it's an excellent question, but the, the, the point of this process is, uh, to some extent, about truth-seeking, hmm. right? So it's not, the, the litigation process isn't purely about having an opportunity to try to make your best case and, you know, rectify something that someone else has done for you. The court wants everyone to be able to, um, to you know, have access to the important stuff that's relevant to the case mm. to make informed decisions on the basis of that stuff. Um, and then to present to the court, uh, you know, a fully baked clear case that involves all of the relevant materials without anything hidden. So the court can be the one to decide, you know, this is what I happened. See. This is what's fair. So it's Cause remember of- that the court is always going to be kind of obsessed with fairness and appropriateness right, and, you know, exactly. applying the law to the facts of the case. So it's a very ideal, so, like, an, and I'm sure, you know, all the good lawyers follow this, but it's a very idealistic way of looking at things, right? Because you're relying on the goodness of the other side that they will share relevant information with you. You're, you're totally right. And, yeah. and you know, there are checks and balances on how that gets done. Yeah. Um, one of the ways, you know, it gets done is that the, the means in which you are actually providing the documents is, is uh, attached to something called an affidavit of documents, which is um, a, a document in which you, you attach all these materials and then you say, um, you know, you swear under oath, uh, you know, to tell the, the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, that you've provided all of the relevant documents after doing a diligent search mm-hmm. of your, your records and here they are and this is all of them and there's nothing else. Yeah. Um, so... There are for sure checks and balances on it, but you know, absolutely, there are people who take advantage of the fact that it is a bit of a um, a hopeful thing that you're going to yeah, have the other people exactly. you know, provide this information. Yeah. All right. So, so then going back to the stages, so we have covered the discovery process, and then I guess next is then going into the courtroom. So the we've covered the first half of the discovery process. Hmm. Um, the second half is. Similar to what you'd see in the uh, in the uh, the best example I can give is if you remember the Social Network, the movie, the, the yeah. Facebook movie, yeah. um, where you've got Mark Zuckerberg um, in depositions with 
the lawyers and they're asking him questions and he's giving evidence about the company. So that that is the next phase. We call them examinations for discovery. Right. Um, and so that's an opportunity where one side gets to examine a representative of the other side in the litigation. Okay. Um, typically that happens in a court reporter's office uh, or a, a boardroom in our offices. Um, but there's a court reporter present. They take all the evidence down and they produce a transcript. So the, and again, the idea is no one's supposed to be surprised by what your case is when you go mm, to trial. Right. And it, it makes it a lot less dramatic than it would be on TV. There are far <laughs> fewer surprise witnesses, fewer sort of aha moments with a document that you pull out of your briefcase and say, well, what about this? Um, that doesn't happen so often because the idea is, you know, we are looking for the truth. We are trying to understand what happened between people or between companies or whatever. Um, and so you, you have these exhaustive processes to, to figure out exactly what happened. Right. And so it's a great. Thanks for sharing the Mark Zuckerberg example, because it really helps frame that, you know, visualize in, in your mind exactly what we're talking about. As a lawyer, have you found any strategy or tactic helpful in terms of how you conduct those examinations? Right? Like, are, like, are you personally like, a, like, I, do you try to be strict and emotional? like totally cold you have no idea what this guy is thinking or like is there something like that i'm uh, i'm tempted to take the donald trump view of this and <laughs> tell you that you know i it's my these are my secret tactics and why would i give up my secret tactics but what i what i will tell you is um my my favorite thing to do is to approach uh to i mean i, I prepare for these examinations like crazy Mm. Um, and I, I make sure that I know everything I could possibly know about a case before I go in. Mm. And then I, I like to go in and prepare or, or pretend like I'm very, very stupid. Mm. Um, and, and to have people explain things to me as if I don't know what those things are. Um, because number one, it can very, be very useful to determine who actually knows what they're talking about and who doesn't know what they're talking about. Right. Um, and it's a good way to get people to give you more information than you want, or sorry, than, than they want to give you. Oh, yeah. Because people people tend to get coached to say, you know, answer the question in exactly how you're asked. Um, you know, if it's a yes or no question, don't give more information than that. Be very direct in your answers and don't go beyond that. Yeah. Um, and I by by asking for sort of more detailed explanations of things because you know, I need to understand something, I can find I get more information from people than they're, you know, originally willing to try to give me. Right. Have you, has, has it ever happened? I mean, you've been doing this for a while now. Ha, have you had like a stressful moment during one of these examinations or like a moment when you were just dumbed, maybe? Um, I don't know. I haven't had any moments where I've been dumped uh because again it is it is sort of exploratory in nature you're sort of mm. learning about the case and ultimately at the end of the day um you know there's no there's no judge there there's no jury in the room it's about fact gathering for the parties okay. and if you know if it turns out that there is some bombshell that that i discover <laughs> while i'm going through this that's harmful to my case i mean at the end of the day that's that's the, the hand you're dealt with right or, sorry that's the hand you're dealt and, and that's the case that you have to work with and so um, you know, you take those moments as they come. I, I've certainly had um, heated moments in, in those examinations where people get upset with my line of questioning or they get upset with me or they don't want to be there because it can seem like a, a huge inconvenience for people at times, right. uh, particularly people who aren't experienced with the legal stuff. Um, they can they can find it a, a big imposition and so they get very frustrated. And again, 
you know, those moments, I'm fortunate in that I have a pretty even disposition. Mm. Uh, and I, I don't react. I, I'm, I'm lucky in that I'm, I'm not the type of person that reacts to that in kind when people get upset. And so again, that's another opportunity where people get upset and then they tend to say things they shouldn't say. Uh, and that often can be helpful in my cases. Right, exactly. Um, I, I, not, think- I, I don't, I don't, you know, I'm not fishing for it per se. I'm not trying to get under someone's skin so that they go and say something they shouldn't say. But certainly if that's how a person is inclined and that's what they're like, Mm. Um, and if, if they fly off the handle and say something they shouldn't say, I'm not going to be upset about it. Yeah. And I think you bring up a very important point that as a lawyer, you have to be someone who has a very, very strong hold over their emotions. So like you, you should ideally not start reacting to how someone else is behaving or reacting because that, that's going to affect your case. Yeah, as I say, I'm lucky that that's the way I'm wired. Hmm. Um, it's certainly not true for everyone that I've dealt with, though I have to say, <clears throat> that the the young lawyers that I've worked with in the city of Toronto are fantastic in terms of being professional and being uh, you know objective driven mm. and and not letting things get get to them. Right. Um, so, but but yeah, I mean, it's it's a total asset for for the profession. I would say for sure. For sure. Okay. So then, going back to the stages. So, uh, so you're doing this examination, etc., in the discovery phase. Is there anything else within the discovery stage? Uh, no, that's just about it. And then the next phase after that, that I would say tends to happen, is um, the mediation phase. Hmm. And and the idea there is just that, you know, particularly with with corporate type stuff. Again, this is a, a risk management issue most of the time it's it's determining after something's gone wrong or allegedly gone wrong with business how much is it going to cost everybody and what should it cost so um before you know going to going to court going to a trial or a hearing of some kind um where it really is tending to be kind of an all or nothing proposition Mm. it makes sense to go to a, a mediator and set out the issues in the case and see if they can help broker a resolution that will avoid the expense of going to trial. Because again, um, you know, to pay a bunch of lawyers to to take something through a trial that can take weeks to get resolved uh, is often just something that eats into the the funds that can be used to resolve a case. Right. So so um, in Toronto, uh, there there are three jurisdictions in within Ontario. Or three regions in Ontario, um, Toronto, Ottawa, and London, for your listeners who have any sense of Ontario geography, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, where uh, mediation is mandatory. Um, so a lot of my cases do get started in Toronto and do have to go through mediation. Nice. But that's a really interesting process. And again, as I said earlier, um, it, it's one where you're convincing another stakeholder of the of the merits of your case. Got it. Okay. Makes sense. And then only if the mediation stage does, is not successful as in you're not able to come to some kind of a mutually agreeable uh, consensus, that's when you will go to the courtroom. Yeah. Um, and, and the one uh, the one exception to that comment, because uh, that, that is generally true and, and these phases are um, these phases are accurate. The, the one other way in which you, you wind up in a courtroom, assuming this kind of this uh, this traditional hypothetical that we're talking about is with something called motions. So, um, and, and for anyone who watches suits, you'll, you'll <laughs> know maybe what I'm talking about. Um, but 
motions uh, come up in a case where you have a, an issue that arises as part of the, the litigation process and you need the court's help in deciding that issue before you can continue with you know, the various stages that are going along. Okay. So, for example, if you have an issue with respect to the questions that are being asked or being answered in the discovery phase or in the deposition, um, you can you know, potentially bring a, a motion um, to refer that question to the court. Say, look, court, we need some insight from you, from a judge, uh, on how we should be handling this question. Is this question relevant? Is the answer privileged or something like that? Gotcha. Um, so the, the, other, the other point in time, and to be honest, it's, it's most of my court time um, where you wind up in court is, is dealing with these intermediate issues. It wouldn't, I don't think it would surprise anyone to learn that lawyers like to fight about every little thing along the way in the case. Um, and so you wind up oftentimes running to court to deal with those issues. The truth is there's a lot of strategic value in those motions. Okay. Um, sometimes you can defeat a case very early with a certain kind of motion before you end up in a trial circumstance. Mm. Um, but I just wanted to, I wanted to give no, that this, clarification this is very that helpful. that's something that happens along the yeah. way. Yeah. So actually, um, I do want to ask you what is being in a courtroom, right? Because I'm very curious about that. But before we get there, you know, one thing which I didn't ask you is that when you're getting these cases, right, to the extent you can answer this, is is there ever a time when you're questioning sort of, you know, hey, this is the case, but what is right? Like, can you say no to a case? Especially because one is when you're running your own private practice, I guess you have more more leeway in accepting or rejecting cases. But when you're working at a company... Do you have that freedom? We have uh, we have guidelines on um, some work that we will and won't take mm-hmm. uh, based on industry and things like that. Um, and I have to say that I haven't had a situation yet in my career mm-hmm. where someone has wanted me to do something that I had uh, any kind of moral or ethical problem with to date. Mm-hmm. Um, so. In the abstract, I mean, in practice, I should say it's not a it's not a question that I've really had to deal with, and I'm fortunate about that. Hmm. Um, my attitude on these things is that subject to, uh, you know, subject to rules that are in place with, the, for example, the the regulator for lawyers or um, rules that my firm has, for example, um, and you know what the part. I mean, I'm not a partner at this firm, and I'm an associate, and you know, there's obviously a conversation about the direction of the business, et cetera. It's a big, big organization and we want to do things the right way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I tend to be of the view that, uh, you know, anybody who comes in the door who could use my help, uh, I'd like to try to be able to provide it to them. Um, and, you know, to the extent that I may not agree with what they do or what they've done, you know, that's not really so much my problem because everybody needs uh, help in these situations. And I went to law school to be able to learn how to provide that help. Um, so it, it's a little bit like uh, being a, a criminal lawyer. Um, you know, criminal lawyers often adopt that attitude that, you know, it, it doesn't really matter what the person did or is alleged to have done or didn't do. The, the point is that everybody needs a defense. Everybody needs someone to help them. Hmm. So so while I, I can say that I haven't ever really had to uh, wrestle with that ethical question, I think um, my, my personal view is that I'd like to try to be able to help just about anybody, you know, within the the rules that are, you know, the, the architecture right. that's around me. Um, 
and um, so I guess we'll see. Yeah, yeah. No, this is very helpful because uh, I think I, I think that is a distinction which which a lot of lawyers seem to make. But like as a as a civilian, it might not always seem like a distinction that everyone might be able to make. But I, but I think it's important to have that attitude if you want to work as a lawyer. Maybe in your case, it hasn't happened so far. Uh, but I'm sure I'm sure it will come up at some point in time, and I yeah. will be asked um, to help someone, and and maybe I will have a hesitation about that. But yeah. the, I hope in that circumstance that you know I'm able to rely on this kind of default attitude, which is that the the whole point of getting this education, this specialized education and training, and and learning how to be a good advocate. Mm. I mean, you you want to be able to apply those skills for the people who need them the most. Right. To some extent, right? right? And so that person who maybe is in a really morally or ethically complicating um, jam, they're in a really difficult situation. You know, those are the people that that you, I'm best suited if I'm any good at my job um, to to try to help. So uh, I guess we'll see. But I, I think that's probably where I land on that spectrum. Gotcha. Okay. So then coming to the courtroom, can you give us like a, you know what what is it like being in a courtroom? Um, it's it's a funny experience. It's one that I find is always changing for me in terms of how I react to it. So I, I'm a, in my fifth year, I've been going to court probably about once a month, um, for, you know, that many years, wow. uh, okay. since very, very early on. I remember my first time in court, uh, where I was actually arguing something that was complicated and contested, um, by myself. And that was, terrifying, um, but very exciting at the same time, um, because I was prepared and I knew what I wanted to do. Uh, and I lost, I lost so bad, oh God. but, yeah. um, it was fun and, and I had a lot of support, mm. uh, from my firm, from people within the organization who were excited that I had the opportunity to go to court and do that. Um, but, um, it, it, so it's a little bit intimidating, particularly when you don't yet know what the process is, because there are a lot of conventions and customs and traditions and practices that you have to follow once you go in. So um, in a Canadian courtroom, you know, you stand up when the judge comes in and you bow when they bow. Mm. And it's, it's very sort of English tradition, classic stuff. And so you, you, you can be told about some of this stuff and and you can learn some of it on the fly. Um, But it's, um, it's interesting and it's fun and it's exciting and it's nerve wracking. Um, And a lot of it, a lot of the experience is dictated by the judge um, because judges have personalities yeah. and they're strange sometimes and they're interesting sometimes and they're funny sometimes and they're strict sometimes uh, and sometimes they're very, very well prepared and sometimes they're doing things a little bit more on the fly. Yeah. Um, and so the, the personality of the judge and their interest level in whatever you're doing and uh, their preparation uh, and, and all those things um, and uh, obviously, you know, the, the opposition that you have in court, if you are opposed in what you're doing, um, all of those things kind of come together and, and I find it makes a new experience every time. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm sure that depending on the l- lawyer who is opposing you, your experience can be very, very different, right? Like, has it ever happened? Like maybe that first case where you lost, where, you know, at some point during the argument, you realize that, hey, you know what, this may not go down so well for me. And then sort of how do you still maintain your composure? Like, what is that experience like? That's a great question. I mean, sometimes, um, so a lot of, the experience of preparing for 
support often means you know going through the, the written materials that you prepared and you submitted in advance because there's a lot of that that happens and then and then making you know detailed notes and these are the arguments that I'm going to bring into court and I'm going to go through them one two three four five and here are the cases you know the the, the jurisprudence that I want to take the the judge to and I want to draw their attention to this paragraph and this paragraph and everything's going to come together great and then you get into court and, and you start and the judge fast tracks you to um, to to some some you know key point that they think is important that maybe you didn't think was important. <laughs> I can tell you, I'll, I'll give you a, a, a funny story. It's not quite your, your question example, but it, it maybe is helpful. Mm-hmm. So in my, in my very first year, I had uh, a case where we had a, a complicated situation. There, there's um, different levels or different types or jurisdictions of court in Canada. There's provincial courts and there's also a federal court. And the federal court handles certain matters that are supposed to be federal issues and the provincial courts handle certain matters that are supposed to be provincial issues. Mm. And we had a case that was based on a matter and we frankly, it was kind of a coin flip whether it should be a federal case or an Ontario case. Mm. So we started the case where we thought we should have started it, which was Ontario. And then just to be safe, we actually started it in the federal court because uh, you remember I mentioned earlier, there's a, you know, there's a two year, limitation right. period there was a you know someone could have made an argument that if we didn't start the case in the proper other court um then you know we might have that that limitation period expire and not be able to advance that case for our client so we started it in both courts and then what we said was um let's put the ontario case on hold because we think this is really a federal court issue so what we should do is just everyone agree that the Ontario case, and when we say everyone agreed, we're talking about us and the other, you know, mm-hmm. the defendants in this lawsuit. Mm-hmm. Um, we said everyone should just agree this Ontario lawsuit should basically just be put on hold. We're going to freeze it for a little while, and we're going to follow this case in the federal court because, you know, no one wants to spend the money and the time fighting the case on two fronts. Let's just have it go ahead in the federal court, and we'll leave the Ontario case behind. And if it turns out that we actually should have brought it in the Ontario court because, you know, the federal court says, hey, wait a second, we don't have any control over this. This should have been in the Ontario court. Hmm. Then we'll bring it back to the Ontario court. We made that proposal to the other side and they said, no, we don't like that proposal. We shouldn't be sued on two fronts. We should make this whole case go away. Hmm. So what I had to do is I had to bring a motion to the court to get the Ontario court's approval to let the case just kind of hang on. Um, and, and and be paused while we followed this up in the federal right. court. Right. So I made this, um, you know, this big brief of materials. We had people swear affidavits that said ABC is true, and this is why we should put the case on hold. And I had this written argument. And I had all these cases. We filed them all, um, and we got materials back arguing why that was wrong. And so we go to court to to argue the motion in person. And I walk in, and the judge. Uh, and, and I, I'm, you know, I've been, this is probably three or four months after that first motion that I lost really badly. Right. And I think this was, I think this was the next time I was in court with anything kind of serious. Hmm. So I was like, I had, you know, I was coming off, I had a, I had a one game losing streak. Um, <laughs> and I was coming into this hoping I was going to make it all work, but I didn't, I was very nervous and I didn't know how I was going to go. Yeah. And so I get in and, you know, when it's your motion, you, you speak first, you have to go make your case. And I think we were booked for about an hour's argument in court. We had an hour to make the case and response and everything. 
And um, the judge comes in and he sits down and he says, uh, Mr. McComb, and I stood up and I was about to begin. And I started speaking with my prepared submissions, mm-hmm. my, my notes. And he stopped me three words in and he said, no, just hold on. I have two questions for you. And he asked me two very simple yes or no questions. I don't remember exactly what they were. <laughs> and and I, I gave him the answers and he said, that's all I need from you. And I sat down. <laughs> and and then he got the other guy to stand up and then really just spent 20, 25 minutes hearing the other guy try to make responding submissions to our motion. Yeah. But the judge was obviously of the view that our idea to put this lawsuit on hold was a very good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so you know, he the other guy did his best. He did a very good job in trying to make his case. But the judge sort of um, hounded him on those questions. And then at the end of it, you know, the judge said, look, uh, I'm going to give Mr. McComb his motion. It's approved, uh, et cetera. So it, you can have this funny experience where you get in there and, and your whole plan just totally gets thrown up in the air because the judge is like, I, you know, I've got so much to do. I don't want to hear this song and dance. I've read your written argument. I don't need anything more than that. So that, that happens very often. Um, I'm trying to think of examples, you know, I've had a few examples certainly where you get a sense from the judge as you're going and making your submissions that they don't necessarily think that your position is so strong. Uh, Mm -hmm. I've had that happen a few times. I've had that happen. And it's turned out that when the judge went back, because, um, you know, after they hear from you, oftentimes they will say, OK, thanks, everybody very much. But I'm not going to decide anything right now. I'm going to write a written decision uh, explaining the reasons for what I'm ultimately going to decide later um, for you. Uh, and and then you get that later. And, uh, you know, I've gone into that experience of waiting for the judge to write reasons, thinking that maybe I lost and then it just turned out I won. Um, so, you know, they ask you tough questions when you're going through the process and Sometimes you think right. that that means that they don't like your case, but oftentimes it's just them trying to get to the bottom of the case and then they're fine with it. Right. No, absolutely. And, you know, I, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I, I think that being successful in the courtroom has as much to do with, uh, you know, being very well prepared and having your arguments, etc. in place, but then also being very adept at managing these, you know, how these things actually play out in the courtroom, like as you're bringing up, right? Like, the judge might do something, the opposing lawyer might do something else. So things can take a very different shape from what you might have imagined. So what do you think are the hallmarks of someone who, of a successful courtroom lawyer? The main one is the first one that you pointed out, which is preparation. Hmm. Everyone has a different capacity to prepare and hmm. a different willingness to dig into the material and prepare efficiently. Hmm. Um, and the truth is, I mean, while you're totally right that a lot of this is, you know, a lot of your ability to deal with the different situations that come up in court has to do with, you know, how comfortable you are on your feet and and, and pivoting and changing your position and sort of um, being comfortable reacting to developing situations. Your ability to do that is rooted almost, you know, 95% in how well prepared you are. Mm-hmm. So... Um, you know, you need to know the cases that you're relying on uh, inside and out. Um, you need to know the cases that the other side is relying on inside and out. So that when, you know, for example, if and it's not uncommon for a judge to um, to maybe misinterpret or misunderstanding or misunderstand something as, as you're going along. And so you need to be able to know the material to bring them to the material and say, 
look, look, I understand your position or what your re- reaction is to this. But if I show you these paragraphs from this case, yeah. I think maybe you'll agree with me that um, it's actually my client's position that's right. Um, to the same extent, I mean, being able to know the facts of the case absolutely back to front, inside and out, is super, super important to be able to say, you know, to a, a responding argument um, from the other side or to the judge, like, you know, no, I, that's not exactly what the what the circumstance mm-hmm. is. What we're looking at is, um, you know, facts ABC are the most important things you're ever going to know. Right. Just one more question on this. Do you think that this changes when you have a jury in the room as opposed to a judge who is presiding over the case? Uh, I think so, absolutely. I think that... Um, we have in Ontario, we have judges with a lot of different specialties, mm. and uh, there are a, a number of excellent judges with commercial specialties who who did what I'm doing now when they were practicing lawyers, um, and then you know they became judges, and so they have a real facility with business information, with financial statements, um, with with the processes of business litigation, and so they're able to fast track things a little bit and pick things up very quickly because they understand contracts and they understand transactions and all this stuff. Um, when you're dealing with a jury of lay people who are, yeah, you know, the, the citizens who are there to hear the case on, on the hmm. you know, behalf of the citizenry and, and to come to a decision, the, the level at which information needs to be explained um, is very different. And it's not because a jury is, um, unintelligent. Often they're staffed with very, very clever, um, good people. It's just that they're not dealing with this stuff on a day-to-day basis. And so you need to explain things at a different level, I think. And that's a, that's a totally different right. challenge. Right. Um, and, and again, I mean, that still does come up sometimes with judges though, who walk into a case, you know, a, a complex patent case or, a um, an That's engineering right. case or a financial <laughs> case, and don't necessarily have that background. Um, you know, you that one of the big challenges of trying to persuade somebody of something is just understanding who your audience is and understanding what the correct level of detail and explanation is to try to help them get um, get to where you are, get yeah. to believe your your client's position. Right. Yeah, you're so right, and I uh, I mean it's it's a great point that you're bringing up, especially in your case when you're dealing with a lot of technology companies where a lot of a lot of cases do seem to be around around like sort of ip infringement and things like that to be able to Mm -hmm. to convince a judge he he or she needs to understand exactly what you're talking about okay so andrew this was extremely helpful you've given us a very very good detailed and easy to understand overview of what really someone in corporate litigation does um I would now like to switch to some of the other sort of more what your thoughts are are on the job overall. So what do you think are the most interesting aspects of working in corporate litigation, especially like, you know, let's say someone is relatively new on their career and you're trying to give them reasons why they might enjoy this job or they should consider taking it up? Uh, Sure, I'll list off a couple. I mean, so the the first one that I I do find really great and I love as a part of this job is the industry learning or the business learning. Mm. Um, so I have a curious mind and I like to learn about things. I listen to a lot of podcasts and I, I like to um, to spend my free time just sort of picking up information and knowledge. And so one of the coolest parts of this job is that if a client who works in a certain industry that I have no knowledge about comes along and they have a problem, I get to learn a lot about their business, and there are a lot of interesting examples of um, businesses that I can mention of, of um, 
you know, industries or, or circumstances or situations and, and getting that kind of in-depth knowledge about what other people do and um, what makes them tick and, and what make these, makes these business tick is, is very, very interesting to me. Um, and, and again, you know, going back to what I said before, so much of, of this job is about preparation and about really, really understanding a circumstance. Mm. And so when you apply that kind of level of detail to learning about something, it's fascinating because you become kind of a subject matter expert, particularly when you're taking things all the way down um, to, uh, to a trial circumstance. Right. Um, so, so that part is really, really cool. Right. Uh, the second thing that I would say um, is great about this job or that, that keeps me in this job really is I absolutely do love the thrill of the courtroom stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a bit of an adrenaline addiction kind of thing in that you, you know, the, the blood pressure does rise when you go into court <laughs> and the heartbeat does increase. And um, it, it's a high pressure, high stakes kind of thing because when I'm, when I'm making a case for somebody, um, be it in an arbitration or a, a courtroom trial or a mediation, um, I am I'm taking responsibility for their issue, uh, and you know they, in almost every case, have a really keen, um, focused interest in seeing that their dispute is resolved in a favorable way. Yeah. And so I'm playing a big part in that, and I get a huge thrill and kick out of that um, when it comes to making court submissions, um, when it comes to arguing cases and and making my point. I think it's awesome. No, absolutely. Um, and it's. I, I totally, I totally do get a real like thrill drive out of that. That has, you know, I, I'm much more comfortable in the court th- uh, now than I was a few years ago when I had that first motion that I lost. But um, it, it's still, you know, it's still not lost on me that when I go to court, um, it is a lot of fun and it's interesting and it's high stakes yeah. and it's great. Can you can um, you describe for us yeah, the fir- the the first time that you won in court? What was that feeling like? Um, so it's a, it's when it comes to important stuff, it's always just a little bit deferred. Um, so one of my first big wins was in a, a small trial that had to do with uh, uh, an e-commerce situation. Uh, my company or my, my client was an e-commerce company that uh, claimed to have done some work for another company and hadn't been paid. And so I was really just doing a small trial to make sure that they could get a court order that say that said that they should get paid. And so the, the premise of the whole thing was really demonstrating the work, mm-hmm. um, showing the court, like, look at all these complicated things that my, my brilliant e-commerce client did um, for these other guys. And, you know, here's the contract and they should have been paid. And, and that was a, uh, a couple of days of work in court. Um, and they were actually separate days. So there was a, a gap in between, um, and we had we went and started and then we had to come back and you know to be honest on the day the, the second day the, the kind of full day of trial um you know i thought things were going well uh the there were cross examinations that happened in court that i thought went well mm. um and i had a sense that things were in pretty good shape um but we ended up doing you know written um closing arguments for the judge and so it, it was kind of deferred in the sense that when I realized I had won, it was because I got an email or a fax from the court <laughs> okay. uh, a few weeks later with these written reasons from the judge. Um, but it's even in that circumstance, and, and you know that's a natural thing because with these complicated, uh, you know, complicated commercial matters, 
it's a, it would almost be a little bit irresponsible, right, for a judge to just sort of be like, well, okay, well, these guys win and whatever. <laughs> you know, usually they take their time and they think yeah. about it and they create really thoughtful um, written written explanations for why they think a certain thing is the truth right. or the, the you know the legal outcome. Yeah. Okay. So it's it's a little bit deferred, but it's still awesome when you open that email um, and you get sort of you immediately kind of get pulled back into the courtroom and you have to read this decision. And so it's very common that the, you know, the, the outcome of the decision, you know, it can be five, 10, 35 pages, however long the thing is, they, the judge may not tell you who wins until the last line of the decision. Oh, wow. So it's very common that you sort of open the attachment and scroll, 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 scroll <laughs> to the bottom and then find the last line and say, good guys win. And you say, yeah, that's great. And then you go back and actually read it and see why the judge thinks that you won because right. It's it's common enough that you say, you know, I think it's reason A, but also there's reason B, and the judge says, forget about reason A. I think reason B is the whole reason why this should happen. Right. Okay. Um, but it's it's totally thrilling. As I say, it's a little bit deferred. Yeah. Um, but it's uh, it's interesting and fun, and you do get this total kick. Absolutely. Out of it. Okay. Right. So going back to the interesting aspects, so one was the learning. Then you mentioned just the thrill of being in the courtroom. Uh, anything else? And the the third one that I was going to say was just that I think. The one of the best parts of the job is the people, and I think this started for me in law school. Mm. When I went to law school, I was immediately surrounded by this group of really, really smart, engaging, interesting people, and I find that there's a subset of that very interesting group who are now doing what I'm doing specifically, which is this corporate litigation, and it tends to be um, – it's this varied group of people uh, with different backgrounds and different interests – but the one unifying characteristic is they're all maybe present company or at least me excluded. Um, they're all super, super smart um, and super engaged in what they're doing. Um, and so it's a total pleasure to deal with them. Particularly, I, I really enjoy working with young lawyers, lawyers who are my vintage, um, because they have a, an enthusiastic sense of what they should be doing and how they should be doing it and what's right and what the best processes are to follow. And they're, I think they're quite well trained. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I love going to court and arguing something, arguing some case, and then you know it ends with the handshake. Um, and a, you know, you congratulate the other person. You say, you know, that was really well argued. Good job. Sometimes we'll go get a drink or a bite after that because it is, you know, I, I have a job that um, successes do get to some extent measured in wins and losses, which is very cool. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like me and boxers who have that. Um, who, who can say that about their careers? But the you know the the amazing thing is that despite this competitive landscape where you're trying to advance your client's case against someone else trying to do the same for their client, we can often get together, shake hands, and then go have lunch and say, you know, that was all interesting, but we're professionals and, and we don't point. have to we don't have to hold a grudge against each other because somebody won or lost, or we don't have to take it personally. I think that's very very cool. It's a credit yeah. to the profession, and I think. The, the people that I get to work with and against are awesome. Also, um, implicit in that is the fact that my own uh, my own colleagues here at the firm are top, top, top notch. No, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a great point that ultimately, I'm sure most of the people in the space are, you know, familiar with each other, are aware of each other, maybe even friends with each other. So even though you might be arguing a case really well in court, outside, you know, as you said, like you end in a handshake, which is, I think is a very telling sort of thing, right? Like, no matter who won or lost, you're still cordial and professional. Yeah, and it's it's totally awesome that way. Yeah. So, uh, and then are there any aspects? 
specifically about this profession that you you know maybe just do not like um i mean that's another great question i think one of the uh one of the natural corollaries of what we've been talking about you know measuring your job and wins and losses means sometimes you have losses Mm. um and sometimes you know a case so sometimes the economics of a case are such that you know it's worth fighting and seeing if you can win but maybe you know you don't have a better than 50 percent chance of winning right um and sometimes you know you just get beaten by other people who maybe work harder or do a better job or argue something better uh and sometimes maybe you lose because a judge just has an interpretation of the law that you don't agree with, uh, or just maybe doesn't get things the way you get them. Um, but you know, losing sucks. It's not fun, but it comes with the job. And so that's one of the things, you know, we all, I asked a senior person at my firm sort of how you deal with that. Like, how do you you know get used to that? And his advice was just look like if you have clients who want to try cases who want to um, you know see if they can win cases that the necessary uh, the, the corollary there is just that you know sometimes you're gonna lose <laughs> yeah um, so so that part's tough um, you know another aspect of it is that uh, there is there's definitely a lot of work involved right like I, and I don't think anybody is under the misconception that commercial lawyers or corporate litigators, you know, don't work hard, but we, you know, we do. And that's, that's the truth. That's a fact of the job is that you have to be able to be prepared and to work hard. And it's a tough marketplace. It's a very competitive marketplace. There are a lot of very smart people doing what I'm doing. So it means putting in a lot of time um, and putting in a lot of effort and thinking about problems. Right. Um, so, you know, that can be a challenge sometimes to, I mean, to balance out life and things like that. But um, I have to be honest and say there's not, too much about my job that I dislike. No, I, and it's very clear that you really enjoy this job. That's why you, you've been kind enough to give me a long interview about it. I mean, people who wouldn't be enjoying that job wouldn't be happy doing that. But just quick follow-up question on this. So you, you mentioned that how you know wins and losses are very important. Ultimately, that's how you get measured. So does your growth within the firm, uh, is that sort of very much contingent on, on how many cases you've won? Uh, no. I don't think it's related to that at all, really, okay. because um, to some, I, I, I mean, I think the, to the organization, as it has to be the case, um, you know, not all cases are the same, and not all cases are, um, you know, the same um, likelihood of success. Uh, I think the the measures of my performance have mostly to do with uh, client satisfaction, so okay. the you know clients. Uh, happiness with the job that we're doing. Um, they have to do with uh, economic measures. So how well we're recovering the the money for the time that I bill on my cases, which again is a direct reflection of client satisfaction. Clients who are very happy with the work that we do mm. are much more happy to pay their bills than clients who are unhappy with the work that we do. Mm. Um, and and you know I mean we actually have, we have a very I think fulsome and fair and complex review process that looks at how I engage with my colleagues, how I work with teams, how I mentor other people, um, I how I you know, interact with the culture of the organization um, as a bunch of kind of softer measures. Um, but then I'm also able to talk about you know, my professional successes in terms of taking on new responsibility 
uh, and taking on harder cases or more complex cases uh, and what role I can play because we have a whole bunch of different team structures. You know, I've been doing this for five years and we have people in the group who've been doing it for 35 years. Um, and so, you know, m- the level of comfort that I have with more complex or more mm. um, distinguishing features, I mean, th- those are all uh, those are all aspects that, that play into how my performance is considered. Got it. Actually, can you talk a little bit about that that uh, sort of career progression within a firm? And as you said, you've been there for five years. There have been people who have been there for 35 years. Uh, so how, how does the job responsibility vary? It's a function of learning. Um, because a lot of what you do, I mean, law school is an abstract place for the most part where you learn about uh, legal concepts and legal theory and, you know, historic cases and sort of the way things should be. And then in practice, um, you know, y- you learn about cases and you work through cases uh, on the fly and you, you work within teams to learn about how cases are supposed to progress and how you can get strategic advantages and best serve your clients and all that stuff. Hmm. Um, so, so your progression is really based on how you learn about, uh, I think industries and also about cases and, and then develop an ability to serve clients better and better as you go. I see. So when, when you start out, you've never done a trial before, you've never done a motion before, um, you've never written a legal argument or interviewed a client or done a deposition before. Um, and so, you know, you work to build those skills uh, and then the idea is that once you sort of establish yourself as being able to do a number of those things and have a really good handle on the, um, the litigation process, that you know, at that point in time, ideally, hopefully, there will be people, clients, companies, people in the public who will be able to see that and hopefully you're able to promote yourself and promote those developing skills uh, and people will see that and say, hey, look, I want uh, Andrew, I want, I want Sonali to help me with my case uh, mm-hmm. to be my lawyer. Right. Um, so I think that's what we're all, to some extent, working towards. We're working, first of all, on learning and improving our skill set. Um, once you build that skill set, you, you, know, you start creating outcomes. We're able to go to court and act for clients of the firm um, and help them with their cases. And then hopefully turn that into uh, marketing to, to spin yourself into working with new clients. Right, no, uh, and and you know, ideally, building a book uh, of clients and and building good relationships with people, and then working towards partnership and having a whole right. you know sustainable legal practice. I exactly. think that's that's the uh, the ideal sort of hypothetical trajectory. Whether whether I'm able to do that or other people are able to do that is a different question. But that's the uh, that's the idea. That's no, that's very very helpful. And and I guess like, do you find a lot of lawyers like yourself? actively try and build your brand as Andrew McComb as opposed to Andrew McComb who works at Norton Rose Fulbright in in the sense that do you want to build your own personal brand or is it very much about the company that you work at? I mean, from my view, um, the the two from my put it this way, it it would be very foolish of me Hmm. to try to build a personal brand that didn't reflect on the huge strengths uh, and support that I have from the organization around me. Hmm. Um, so, you know, ultimately clients could make their decision to retain me or the firm um, on either on either basis. They could say, hey, look, Andrew, we think you're really smart. We'd like to have you be our lawyer. We need you in this dispute. Hmm. Or they could say, 
Norton Rose is this excellent firm with totally good pedigree, very good legal quality, um, and so we want them to be, uh, you know, them to be our client or our, our legal counsel in whatever issue. Um, they can make that decision on either basis. And I think from my perspective, I want to set myself up to be in a position to help them make it on either basis, to look at me and say, Andrew is a totally qualified person. We want him. Or to say, this is a guy who's, you know, qualified enough, who's working within this great organization. And we want that. We want this organizational structure. Hmm. Um, I think there are people out there who are definitely promoting themselves based on personal brand primarily. Uh, and that may make sense for them, depending on what kind of organization they're in. Um, there are definitely other people who rely, uh, you know, heavily on, on trying to show off that organizational strength uh, as their selling point. And I think both are valid. Uh, I certainly see both within, you know, uh, my networks. But from my perspective, the, the key is to show how, you know, I have something to offer as an individual within this really great cohesive whole that has a lot of service offering right okay makes sense all right so just last few questions i may end up splitting this episode into two parts but last <laughs> few questions from the point of view of recruiting and you know people who are who might be interested in getting into corporate litigation so if you were to think about five qualities in someone who might enjoy doing what you're doing what do you think those five qualities would be um, those are good questions. So uh, I think the first one that comes to mind is, uh, people who are hard workers. Mm. Um, whenever we, and we just finished a recruiting process now and the students year over year amaze me with um, how dedicated and driven they seem to be. Um, so I think that's the first, the first thing that comes to mind. We want people to, to sort of put in the time because the truth is, you know, I'm putting in the time myself to get cases to the finish line. And I want to know that the people on my team are arm in arm with me on doing that. Yeah. Um, so that's number one. Number two is I think people who um, who have curious minds are really well fitted for the job. Mm. And I, I find that in myself that I like to learn. I like to be exposed to new things, and, and I like to to just discover stuff. And so the idea of becoming a sort of a minor subject matter expert on a day to day basis. If that excites you, if that is something you're interested in, if you if you look at the idea of say getting into a career in in industry A and staying in that industry forever, if you think that maybe sounds a little bit mundane and you'd rather sort of have access to a million different things, uh, then I think that's another good characteristic. Right. Um, uh, a third thing um, would be. Uh, a real strong aptitude or, or attitude towards teamwork. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of the stuff we do uh, is really team-based, and we need multiple people to be doing multiple jobs that sort of interact and intersect. And so we're always looking for people who have really strong team backgrounds, who love working with other people, who get you know uh, improved outcomes out of other people. Uh, and, and from working with other people than they would if they went about things themselves. I don't think this is an environment for lone wolves. I don't think that makes sense okay. for us. Mm -hmm. um, it's one where you know you got to get along with the people you're with um, and, and get good outcomes from working with them. Right. Um, uh, uh, fourth thing is I think you know a competitive spirit definitely helps. It's not a prerequisite, hmm. but I, I certainly think that I have that in that you know I was uh, 
I was into sports as a kid and I've always enjoyed the fact that I, I get to kind of compete against people and compete against ideas um, in this setting to try to win cases. This is very much about winning cases. We, you know, we try to offer that as a service that we're trying to help clients get these optimal outcomes and winning. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to, to be a bit of a fighter, to, to want to try to win, I think is awesome. That's right. Um, sometimes people get too competitive and it affects them. So it's, it's good to sort of have um, thick skin and an ability to, you know, put your work behind you when, um, whenever you can. But uh, I think a, a bit of a competitive drive is great. And then reason number five, I'm amazed I've actually got five answers for you. <laughs> I think this is great. Um, but I think reason number five uh, would be just having a sense of humor uh, about yourself and about mm. what you're doing. Because one of the things that kind of comes hand in hand with everything that we do in this job is that um, there's a lot of absurdity. People get themselves in, in absurd situations, complicated situations, <laughs> um, difficult situations, and things like you know losing in court. It's a lot easier to do that if you can turn around and just sort of laugh at the the experience and say, "Oh man, I really screwed that up." Um, and so to to have a sense of humor about yourself, a lightness about yourself, uh, I think is a huge asset for for anyone thinking about being a a litigator of any kind. Right. So. I'm actually this. This was a great list, but I am going to push you on this a little bit. And the reason I I want to do that is because so so the reason I ask this question is that for a lot of people, right? Like at times, there'll be a bunch of jobs, and they're confused about you know they all sort of sound interesting. Which one should I pick? And I I think like in today's times, a lot of people will say that you know hey you need to be passionate and you need to be hard work like but you know like I I can take those qualities and slot them in other jobs also not that doesn't mean mm-hmm. that they're not important right so are there things which are very specific about this job so for, so based on my just like listening to your really nice description of the job so far so some things that stand out for me and correct me if I'm wrong which which I think are very critical in this job so clearly I, I think you have to enjoy debate a lot like if you if for example you do not enjoy framing an argument you do not enjoy thinking about how I can use words and facts and put them together in a way that to form a very compelling and cohesive argument like if you're not good at that or at least enjoy it then then I think you will be at a disadvantage or you will just not enjoy it because this is this is like probably 80% of your job. You're thinking about how to string words and, and numbers together to frame like no cracks case, right? I think it's more important to enjoy it than to be good at it. Okay. Uh, because there's no training that that really trains you like this job. So I think if anyone said, well, you know, I'm, I never win arguments with my friends. I shouldn't become a lawyer. I, I would tell them, Look, if you like arguing with your friends, definitely become a lawyer. lawyer. So I think yeah. I think you're right. The one the one point of pushback I would have um, with that is just that, you know, uh, I'm I'm surrounded by uh, a team, a uh, relatively big team of people here, who have totally different dispositions, mm-hmm. um, and so some of them are like me in that they have a debating background and they're competitive. And they like stringing together arguments. And then other people are just, they're very different. And they approach the job in different ways. And I don't think if you spoke to them, they would say, A, they, you know, they like arguing with people. Or B, they like the, the sort of competitive challenge or anything like that. Mm. I think they may have a totally, they, you know, they may talk about, you know, exploring industry. Or they may talk about 
um, you know, they, they like legal writing because they find it interesting and persuasive or something like that. Um, they, I think they come to it with different backgrounds. I think the, the point you mentioned is a very good one that absolutely could apply, but by no means is it a prerequisite. I see. Okay, no, but that's good to clarify, right? Because um, yeah. uh, you, cause at least I was about to take away that thing that, okay, you know, I should enjoy that if I want to get into uh, law. Uh, another one which stood out for me, at least, was that maybe to thrive in this profession, you might want to have some sort of sense of responsibility towards your client. So like when a, I would imagine that when a client goes to a lawyer or a law firm, like they're really putting themselves in the hands of that lawyer. And that thing is of pretty reasonable importance to them, which is why they're spending that much money and time on it. And so as a lawyer, if you're someone like you shouldn't be treating it as, yeah, fine, whatever, you know, I'll, I'll see what I can do. Like if you have that sense of responsibility towards your client, that can go a long way in not only doing your job well, but I don't know, like your client will like you a lot more. You'll be better at what you do. You'll enjoy it more. What do you think? I agree 100%. I think that piece is a big differentiator between good lawyers and okay lawyers. Hmm. The, the ones who thrive on that responsibility of taking on the challenge of sort of adopting someone else's issue and making it their own and getting passionate about it, those are the people who I think find a lot of success. The ones who are more uh, indifferent maybe is the right word um, to that circumstance and don't get sort of in the driver's seat of inhabiting someone else's problem. I think they are, they're going to find less success. Right. Okay, good. And then I think the last thing for me was that you definitely have to be very okay with winning and losing on a very, very constant basis. Like a lot of other jobs, you know, you, you come up with a proposal or something, you know, things might go well, not so well, but the win and loss aspect is really not there. But I think in your case, it's very much a part and parcel of your daily life. Yeah. If you, if you can't handle the stress of that, I think that would be, um, that would be a challenge. Uh, it's something everyone can learn. Uh, I don't know that going into this, I would have thought um, that you know I would ever learn to accept it. I mean, the, the truth is, I, I I will say with the the only the slightest bit of uh, arrogance that I've been fortunate not to have to deal with the losing thing too many times, um, which has been great. Uh, but the truth is, you know, what I always say, and this is one of the things that I was taught as a kid with sports, was that it's really important to be a good loser, mm. to be a graceful loser, but it doesn't mean you have to like it. That's true. That's um, a good point. And yeah. so I've always tried to focus on that. And I don't know that everyone can can do that, um, to, to do that properly. I know that um, I've had very good experiences when I've been successful and, and, and dealing with people being very gracious and, and you know very honest about the, the circumstance but I think you're right Sonali that 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 does come with the territory again it's a competitive job and so mm-hmm. hopefully that the competitive drive that people have to try to pursue cases for people and to enjoy the thrill of that is enough to to keep them coming back for more despite the fact that the job necessarily means sometimes, you know, putting yourself out there as at a, at a risk of losing. Right. Okay. All right. So in terms of typical background, I guess everyone has to go to law school if they want to become lawyers. Yep. Right. And like, do you, do you find anything else in terms of typical backgrounds for this job? Uh, the easy answer to that question is no. Okay. So I deal with, I deal with people who have strict business backgrounds. I deal with people who have science backgrounds. Um, music, uh, literature, history, 
a lot of people who go to law school who, who decide early on they want to go to law school do things like politics degrees, sociology degrees, ethics degrees. Hmm. Um, and that's great. Those are totally good avenues to get into law school and to get into a career in, in uh, law and in litigation. But there's no, um, there's absolutely no formula for how to get here. As I said, I, you know, I'm doing business work on an everyday basis, but I have no formal business training whatsoever. I only have a few. I did, I did a, uh, I did courses towards a minor in economics. Um, I didn't finish my minor in economics, but I, I have some economics background, but I certainly don't have any finance courses, any business studies courses um, from my studies. And I, you know, I do business work every day. So um, you can learn a lot of this stuff while you're in, you know, in the, in the circumstance, in the industry doing, doing legal work. Um, And there's no, there's no correct path. And I, I find there's a million different ways to get here and everyone's got their own interesting story. Gotcha. Okay. So if let's say I'm interested in, in applying for a job as a lawyer, uh, first of all, uh, what is the best way to apply? Do I sort of just go to a company's website or do I try and get a referral or something else? There is, um, if you're, if you're thinking about doing what I'm doing, um, Mm. at a, at a big firm like mine, and I think this is probably true of a lot of cities around North America, but it's going to be specific in each place. We have a very structured uh, recruitment process that's governed by a bunch of rules that are set out by the law society uh, that uh, that applies in in Ontario, um, and so it's it's very structured. There's an application deadline for all law students to try to get summer jobs, and typically those summer jobs lead to full time jobs mm-hmm. um, where where you know where numbers are available, where space is available. So that's how I got my job, and that's certainly how most of my colleagues got at least their very first job, okay. um, working towards becoming a lawyer at a at a law firm mm-hmm. um, within you know within a city like Toronto or in Vancouver or in Ottawa or Calgary. Um, for your Canadian listeners, uh, and I, as I say, I expect there's something very very similar at, for a recruitment process out of uh, most law schools. Um, otherwise, if you are um, if you're qualified. Uh, or you're a you're a law student, um, and you're thinking about trying to get into the profession, and you want to uh, contact a, a law firm and, and seek a job. Um, most firms do have very detailed career pages mm. uh, that will talk about jobs for lawyers or talk about jobs for law students. Um, so those are good places to start as well. They should have, uh, you know, their own unique processes will be set out in some detail there. Okay. And do you hire at all people who are not in law school right now? So let's say someone has a law degree, but maybe they worked in, I don't know, consulting, management consulting for a few years. Um, I mean, I would say that it sounds like it's a certainly a possibility that if, if they're qualified and they have something they can bring to our team, hmm. that we would uh, definitely want to consider bringing them on. We bring... Uh, so, we, you know, our, our recruitment focus is through this student recruitment, but we also bring in people at various stages all the way up through the partnership mm. um, when they when they have something that can be a complement to our team. So, yeah, I mean, I would say absolutely. Um, and, and in an environment like this one, you know, big law, uh, a, a large firm that is supposed to provide a lot of different services to uh, corporations and to other people, um, any opportunity we get to enhance our, our bench strength, our team with a new skill set and a new background is a great opportunity and certainly one that I think we're um, looking to explore. Mm. 
So given the highly competitive nature of the market, are there any suggestions on how, let's say, a law school student can stand out during that recruiting process? Um, yeah, I mean, the, I'm just thinking about the, the most interesting students that we've met with. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the students, I mean, this goes without saying, but your law school grades and your undergraduate grades, uh, they often do matter. Hmm. Um, so it's important to really apply yourself um, and to show that you can handle that work and understand those ideas. Uh, so, you know, we're always looking at that. Um, I think, you know, this is this is sort of cliche, obvious stuff, but um, professionalism is huge and we want to meet people that we think we can put in front of clients right away. Uh, people who will represent the brand of the organization really well. Um, But that also doesn't mean people who are boring. Um, We love to see people who have interesting backgrounds, interesting stories of how they wound up in law school or how they wound up in undergrad or how they wound up applying to the firm, you know, where they came from, um, what their interests are, what their hobbies are. Um, You know, a lot of people end up sometimes trending toward the middle with a, 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 a similar background to a lot of other people. It's very conventional. And sometimes um, it, it, sometimes people can get in a bit of a trap uh, when they decide early on they want to become a lawyer and then they go through uh, you know, a bunch of steps that they feel like a law firm down the road one day might want to see on the resume. But the truth is, to my mind, you know, the, the, any, any varied experience, any different experience is going to be interesting. In an interview or when I'm reading your application and thinking about whether you're a good fit for Mm. the firm. I mean, Mm. we love unique people. We love unique backgrounds um, and and experiences and, uh, you know, developed skills and stuff like that. So it's really just think about what makes you unique and, and punch that really hard up in your, in your applications and make sure that, um, you know, people appreciate it. Yeah. Okay. So uh, any resources that you might want to recommend for listeners uh, either either to help them with recruiting or to just learn more about the space, like books, blogs, articles. Uh, resources on becoming a lawyer? Not just becoming a lawyer. So, you know, either from the point of view of recruiting or let's say, you know, there are some thought leaders in this space that you personally follow or would recommend others to follow. Uh, I'm just giving examples, like, you know, anyone who's interested in learning more about this space. Um... Thinking. Mm-hmm. So, okay, let me, if that's too vague a question. So as an example, uh, you could talk about uh, since uh, since debating and discussion is so important, maybe there are some books on just how to craft a great argument that you have really enjoyed in the past. So I'm just throwing examples out there. So anything related to this space that you personally might have enjoyed in the past? What I'll say is that something that's that's really important to do in my shoes, and I think to be a, a good litigator, I, I've talked about having a curious mind. Hmm. And so something that I try to do to sort of sharpen that is to, to practice that all the time and to keep learning all the time. And so a big part of that for me is actually podcasts. Oh, um, so right, I, yeah. I listen yeah. to a lot of different podcasts. Mm-hmm. Some of them are legal. Most of them aren't. Mm-hmm. Um, just because what I like is for my brain to get pulled in a lot of different directions. And I also love, um, particularly when I stop working and I'm out, you know, traveling home or walking my dog or exercising, um, to be able to pull my mind in a completely different direction mm-hmm. from the stuff that I'm working on, um, uh, on a regular basis. So I, I would encourage anyone who's, who's thinking about getting into what I do 
to think about you know stuff like podcasts or political magazines or um, anything that just can keep you interested and try to do it all the time with all your free time. Yeah, actually, it's always nice to meet a fellow podcast lover. So, uh, are there any yeah. podcasts that you follow regularly? The stuff, the ones that I love are a lot of the the sort of the principal greatest hits I think for a lot of people but I, I love Radio Lab I love Stuff You Should Know mm. um, This American Life The Economist uh, Freakonomics Planet Money Planet Money is a, a particularly good one because those are, you know I don't have a business background or an economics background beyond mm. a little bit of study and so those are guys who are able to take a lot of relatively complex and interesting um, world economic affairs subjects and turn them into you know very uh, digestible understandable pieces i think is awesome right okay no that that's that's a great list i listened to quite a few of those myself so all right well thanks a lot andrew this was i'm i'm sorry this was long but this was so great and you you were very patient and you gave really really good answers so thank you so much is there any other advice you'd like to share with someone listening no i i i would encourage anyone who's listening to um to give it a shot and think about law school and think about a career doing what I do. As I say, it's interesting and it's fun and it's hard, um, but it's super, super rewarding and I love it and I'm probably going to be doing it for a very long time. <laughs> okay, great. Well, thank you so much and uh, have a good weekend. Thank you, Sonali. All right, so that was Andrew with a great account of what someone in corporate litigation does. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion and if you enjoyed it as much as I did, then you should subscribe to the podcast. Simply check out our website at learneducatediscover.com where you'll find links to the podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud and Stitcher so you can subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And of course, on the website, you'll also find links to our previous episodes, helpful resources, and also the ability to sign up for our newsletter. So do check it out at learneducatediscover.com. You can email us if you have any questions at hello at learneducatediscover.com or tweet at us at led underscore curator or like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash learneducatediscover. All right, that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening and until the next one, adios.